Okay, so as Chris said, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I once also had confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Evening, everyone. Who's feeling really, really tired? Oh, good. I've got the perfect solution for it. I've organised with Pre that if anyone falls asleep... During the sermon, he's going to sneak up, up on them and kiss them. <laughs> uh, it should work, I think. Um, you've got the uh, sheet here, which has the um, uh, very um, full notes for the uh, sermon there. Okay, They will be full after, because I hope someone's got a pen, because you're going to have to uh, do something with your pen on this sheet. Um, <clears throat> We've been doing this series on Philippians and the focus has been on Jesus, on Christ. And uh, you can see here that the, the title has been A Christ-Like Suffering. And I've got another title for it as well that I think fits in perfectly with that. The big idea of this part of Philippians is it's worth following Jesus no matter what. Um, there's a... Uh, a guy who uh, was a rather famous writer called Oscar Wilde. And uh, in one of his fictional characters, he said that a cynic is someone who knows the cost of everything and the worth of nothing. And uh, I think that was a very intense, um, profound sort of thought. I think I'd change it just a little by saying... It could apply to anyone who does not know Jesus. That they don't know the worth of anything until they've worked out the real worth of Jesus. And for some people, they don't know the worth of Jesus because we haven't told them. 
And for some, they don't know the worth of Jesus because um, they're too interested in other things. Uh, They don't care uh, because they're tied up with things that someday they will find are worthless. And some of those worthless things might even be religious things. Doesn't seem possible, does it? Paul's about to deal with a really big problem that was facing the Philippian church. So he's got to get the Philippian church in the right frame of mind before he does it. He's going to deal with persecution. He's going to deal with pain. He's going to deal with the Christian life is not always wine and roses. He's going to deal with the tough life of a Christian. And for some people, as we look into that, it seems like it's so dark. It's so difficult. It's so, And it's as if um, you're digging this hole. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where the conversation just turns to sort of the, the, the dark? And uh, it seems like you, um, you're not getting anywhere with the uh, conversation because um, it just seems so... It's not going anywhere. At those times... In conversations that you have, what you need is a ladder to climb out of that hole. And Paul, who knows that what he's about to say is going to get some of the people who are reading this thinking through, wow, the Christian life is so hard. He's given them a ladder to climb out of the hole. And the ladder is in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a, what a weird expression, it is a protection for you. To rejoice is going to protect you. Rejoicing in the Lord is Paul's safety valve. It's his escape plan. It's his ladder. It is his protection plan. Paul's already spoken about joy and rejoicing ten times already in this letter. And he's going to do it another ten times apart from this in verse 1. So it's it's obviously an important idea that he's presenting there. So I want us just to take a moment to spiritually protect ourselves. To think of joy for a moment. The joy, the rejoicing that comes from knowing Jesus. Will we pray? Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, please remind us of the hope that we have, of the joy that we have in Jesus. Lord, when it gets tough, remind us of Jesus. When we feel as if we want to give up, remind us of Jesus and of what he offers. He offers himself. He offers a relationship with you. Father, we have so much to be joyful about, even in the midst of dealing with very serious things. So, Lord, as we look at this passage now, we ask that you open up your word to us, speak to us, change us, help us to be ready to be different this week and the rest of our lives, remembering that as Christians we have a great reason to be joyful. Protect us now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 2, 
Paul gives a warning. Um, It's not a warning that says, run away. It's the warning that says, get ready for a fight. The enemy is coming, coming, stand your ground and be prepared to deal battle. And if you look in verse 2, you see what the enemy is. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Um, There's one Bible teacher who translates this as, and I think it's a good way, this would be a good one to actually write down and just think through. Watch out for the curs, the criminals, and the cutters. The curs, the criminals, and the cutters. The first one, the curs or the dogs. To call a person a dog is... A great sign of endearment, isn't it? Not really, except in one case, and that is on Greg's phone. Because when Greg wants to contact me or if he wants to know if um, I'm the one who's ringing, what does it say, Greg? That's right. It's a term of endearment, I hope. Um, uh, But in this case, in the Bible, it doesn't mean that you're man's best friend. It's a cur, C-U-R. In Wikipedia, that place where you go to get all the absolute facts, (laughs) a cur is the lowest class of nameless dog or pariah dog, generally a mixed breed dog. Have you got it? Mixed breed dog. A mongrel. And that's getting close to Paul's insult. Except, if you want to really understand it, multiply it by ten at least. Because in the, uh, the Israel culture, they didn't have pet dogs. Dogs were the scavengers. Dogs were the things that um, roamed the streets that were a danger when the, uh, the light went down. Um, the second way that these people are described, they are the evil worker. And the best way to look at that is the evil worker is the professional criminal. He chooses to go around doing evil. He's made a profession of it. He loves doing it. He's been born for it. The next description helps us really nail what you see these people doing. These are the ones who mutilate the flesh. They are the cutters. Those who don't like writing down notes, perhaps you enjoy drawing. Maybe this might help you. Okay, anyone who wants to draw it, anyone who wants to take a um, photograph of it, this is the way to remember tonight's sermon. You got this in your head and you've pretty much got, I've got to be very careful, I put this down uh, somewhere this morning on the front, and straight after the uh, sermon, I forgot about it. I should have put it in my pocket, and it, uh, a child picked it up. <laughs> Nothing happened. It was very good, safe. Uh, <coughs> anyway, uh, these are the cutters, the cutters. Uh, they're either getting into the church, or they've been there for a long time. They are like sleepers. Uh, are you familiar with that idea, if you've ever read a Jack Ryan book or something like that? Um, they're spies who have actually infiltrated a, um, a society, a culture, a nation, and they're sleeping. They, 
They've been there for decades. And it takes a particular time when the enemy says, now is the time to strike at this nation. And then they do their damage. Um, In a sense, these cutters were stirring up the church by saying that Jesus was not enough. Whether they came in later on after the church was established or they've been there all along, we don't know. The entry ritual to the Jewish faith was circumcision. Each male had to have his foreskin cut off. And in the Old Testament, it was a sign that they were children of God and the women were covered by the man in whose family they were in, whether it be the husband or the, uh, the father. And these people, these cutters... They were saying that in order to get into a right relationship with God, the ritual of circumcision had to continue. And you can be certain that it didn't stop there. They were saying, oh yes, we're Christians, we believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, but everything that you've been reading in the Old Testament, that still stands. You've got to be doing all of that and then you can be a legitimate member of the family of God. And that's where Paul attacks them, verse 3. Up until now, just before looking at that, um, when he uh, talks about the cutters, he uses a special word. And uh, in some places, you see, um, they're talking about the people who practised circumcision. But the word that he uses, you know how the Bible is uh, in the Old Testament was written first in the Hebrew and then the New Testament was written in the Greek? Um, Sometime before the New Testament, people had translated the Old Testament, into Greek. So, this word that Paul is using for the cutters was used in the Old Testament for the pagan religions and the people who followed the religions where they cut themselves in order to get noticed by God. They were mutilating themselves to be able to get the notice of God to be acceptable to their pagan gods. He used that word to describe these people who were of Jewish origin, who were coming into this church and saying, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. And that means the circumcision and all the other things that are involved. You see, the strongest way that the cutters could promote their idea, their belief, was to say that they were the circumcision the usual word for circumcision that is used in the Bible when it talks about God's people. Paul doesn't use that word for them. But now in verse 3, he does use the usual word for circumcision that is used in the Old Testament for God's people when he says, for we are the circumcision. He's saying those who are actually practising physically the act of circumcision, they are not God's people, because they have mucked up the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he says, we are the circumcision. And what are they going to look like? The ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. That is what they can do. And also, probably, quite literally, it's tied in with the idea of the circumcision as well. So the true circumcision are the ones who 
are serving God by God's spirit, who are boasting in Christ Jesus, and they're not putting their confidence in the flesh. The total opposite of these cutters. Paul says that the Christians that he is talking to are the real circumcision because they are the real children of God. Does Paul know what he's talking about? Does he know what he's talking about? You see, before he became a Christian, his faith was in the cut, in the circumcision. It was not faith in the Christ. Uh, In verse 4, Although I once had confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, saying in what he does and in the the old way of... of, um, um, being religious, he says, verse 5, he was circumcised the first day. There you go. He's got some inside knowledge there. If there was any validity, if there was any necessity to be circumcised to be a Christian, Paul could argue for it. But he actually argues against it. He goes on to say, he gives more of his uh, credentials, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, Regarding the law, a Pharisee, and the Pharisee, we uh, often times today, we automatically think of them as being hypocrites. But um, give them a fair go. Uh, in their time, and when they were actually developing as this group of Israelites, they were the ones who were actually getting to God's word and they were trying to teach it. But over the years and over the decades and the centuries, they twisted it to the point that when Jesus came along, They were the major opposition to Jesus, the ones who knew the Old Testament the best. If you scratch anyone deep enough, there's probably some Pharisee in each one of us. We can make things that are so important that we begin to stick it into our definition of what being a Christian is. I had a whole different bunch of um, illustrations of this in the morning and I was thinking, how do, what fits for church at five? It's interesting that um, at a previous church, one lady had approached the uh, minister and said, if I ever see drums in this church, I'm leaving. The next week, there was a, um, drums there and she left. Um, Ten-string instruments... The Bible in Psalms talks about ten-string instruments. We're right here because we've got an instrument with six and an instrument with four. Put them together, ten. So it's okay, isn't it? Is that how we approach it? Um, Wrong clothes. I love Nath's cap. It is really cool. Wish I had one. Then I'd be on the inn. And, And also, not too long ago, Nath, I don't know if you know, but you're wearing your hat the wrong way. You know, do you remember that time when everyone was doing it that way? Is anyone doing it now? Just do it for a moment. Just show how ridiculous it looks. Okay, cool. Okay, we laugh at them, but we can still accept him. Uh, some people are just awkward. When they tell a joke, it just comes across as very uncool. And there are some people who you just find difficult to mix with. If the church is 
where God's people mix, then your level of coolness, your level of fitting into the normal stream of society should not influence the way that you treat them. I know that we think at Church of Five it's a relatively young group compared to some of the others and you think, well, we don't have any traditions to worry about. We haven't built in anything that is is um, conflicting with the gospel or competing with the gospel. Can I say, you get a tradition after about two weeks and you've got to be very careful about the things that you, ex- you say. Are, these, these are absolutely essential for the Christian life and you give it the same level of importance as the gospel itself. Again, I remember um, a, a young girl, probably about 18 at the time, who was highly offended when for one week someone had changed the order of the communion and at this other church uh, people actually came to the rail. There was a rail and they came to the front. And then uh, the minister decided, I'm going to do a bit different. Uh, today, we're actually going to pass it out to everyone so everyone can have the, um, the drink and the food at the same time. She was highly offended, had a great big argument with the minister after saying, we don't do that here. I think I'll leave. I know people who have been rejected, uh, maybe not um, overtly, because of their smell. That, that is... I've got a sensitive nose. But what do you do with someone who you actually find... I find it difficult to be around this person physically. How far do we need to take this message that we have that the gospel is the most important and all the other features in our life have to be secondary They have to be down on it so that we accept people on the basis of the gospel, of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, not the way that we are um, accepted by many people. And I guess for some of you as well, whatever we decide in church, it's going to flow out into the community. And this is where you guys, I think, um, this is going to be particularly relevant, I think, to you because uh, many of you are actually getting to the stage where you're thinking maybe of a lifetime partner. Have you noticed how many people, when they're thinking about church, outside the church, they say they want to have a church wedding? I want you to think for a moment what that means. I would have thought a church wedding means that the church comes together and celebrates and encourages the two people up the front who will make a commitment for life to each other with Jesus as the top of their team. But many of them actually say, no, what I mean by a church wedding is we want to have the uh, really nice historic building. That's not a church wedding. That's a wedding that's inside a church building. Big difference. Where do they get that idea? Sure, they've got the idea outside, but I'm wondering maybe if it's actually floating through because we're not talking about church enough and letting them know what church is really all about. To think that we can live a fully devoted life to Jesus and not 
be sorrowful for those who don't have Jesus as their king is ridiculous. How can you be fully devoted to Jesus and not care about those who Jesus has died for and they are heading to hell? How can we not have the same level of sorrow as Jesus, the one that we say that we're following? How can we not take risks in telling people about Jesus? Let me just reverse that and I'll give you a sort of a, it's a bittersweet illustration. Um, this week, uh, some of you will have uh, known uh, Judy Wand. She has gone to be with the Lord, um, a beautiful lady. Anyone who knew Judy Wand would have had at least one conversation with her about Jesus because she initiated it. And you would have understood a little bit about her heartbreak with family, her family and her friends who had not yet accepted Jesus. And she would cry about it and she would talk about it and she would pray about it and she would also tell them that, that she was praying for them, even though they would say, oh, stop this religious stuff. And she'd say, it's not about religion, it's about Jesus and what you're doing with him. Um, she was upset when, as she got sick and she um, had to uh, move, she was upset that she could not continue scripture classes at Pitt Town School because she loved the kids and she wanted them to know Jesus. She could have had so much less suffering, so much less angst and pain if she'd just done one thing, you know what it is, don't you? To shut up, to don't talk about Jesus, to don't bring up the most important thing in her life. But she knew it was worth following Jesus because she knew that until that person was following Jesus, they were heading to an eternity of regret. How did Paul express his trust in his religion before meeting Jesus? Verse 6. Regarding zeal, that is, being excited about his religion. How did he show his excitement? By persecuting the church. Can you see a problem developing here? He had to have a huge change in the way that he thought. And regarding the righteousness that is in the law, that is in the Old Testament, he said, I was blameless. Uh, yesterday as uh, has already been mentioned, we, we had some uh, professional footy players here and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Not because I love football, which I don't. <laughs> but these guys were talking about Jesus and how they talked about Jesus with their mates. That's not my focus, actually, of the point. What my point is here is that I found it fascinating that when they were talking about why they were in the code, that's as, look, um, I, I had to just check this before, and I'm getting the right words, you know, the code, league, union, soccer, whatever it is. Um, um, why they, some of them actually had a story about how they changed codes. And I, it seemed like it was a big thing. They didn't just do it, you know, um, you know off the cuff. They had to really think it through and they thought about the um, implications of it. So no matter what you think about what code is played in heaven, um, if you want to know, ask Greg. Okay, The professional guys who had made the switch were speaking with a kind of authority 
that people like me don't have. They had inside information, inside experiences, and um, I don't know the basic differences between the codes, let alone all the, the different um, rules, but they did. Here's my point. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had played for the other code. And for him, it was just so clear. Um, his previous trust in the circumcision, the repeated sacrifices, the food laws, the constant washing, the avoiding of people who might contaminate you because of your origins or because of a particular disease, were now seen in a totally different light. Unlike league and union... His previous code was wrong. It wasn't a preference thing. Those who continued to follow the old code with the circumcision had rejected Jesus in the process. And how did Paul think this through? Verse 7. But everything that was a gain to me, he was talking about all the gain that he saw in the old code, everything I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. If I have understood that correctly, in maths, that's not saying it's actually it's zero. It means it's gone into the negative. It's worse than nothing. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a rising star in Judaism. And he knew his Old Testament inside out. But the so-called wisdom that he had accumulated came shattering down when he met Jesus. Verse 8, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. Everything? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth. Some of you, if you ever get uh, in uh, a King James Version, stick it on your phone and you look it up, you'll find it's interesting. The word instead of filth that is put there is the word dung. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him and not having a righteousness of my own, but one that is through faith, through trust in Christ, what he has done on the cross, the righteousness from God based on faith, on trust. As Paul clearly preached the good news of Jesus, he was exposing how some of these so called Christians were insisting on circumcision, and you can put it any other words, insisting on the way that you dress, insisting on the way you speak, insisting on how you do church, insisting on all of these things. they were actually teaching and preaching a different Jesus. Paul had found his real treasure, Jesus. Why would he go back to the things he, he, that only deserved to be thrown out on garbage night? Why would he do that? And he saw the Philippians are in danger of doing that. And he had to remind them. You see, it changed everything. If you were here yesterday, uh, Greg was up here as well with the, uh, the three other guys, uh, and uh, Greg said this yesterday, um, and he sort of 
just said it in passing, but I thought, wow, that is really good. I've heard him say it before. When you change the one thing, that is the one thing um, that you are on Jesus' team, you change everything. So when you've changed the code, you play by different rules. You have a different allegiance. And that came through as well when the, um, the three footy players, uh, they, they were talking about um, the stories in their life and it just came through again and again and again that when they had committed their life to Christ, it changed everything. Some of them, be- One of them became a Christian before uh, starting playing footy and uh, one of them during footy. Uh, Greg's story himself, uh, it came during he was playing footy. It changes everything. All your values change. Your sense of what is worthy, your sense of what things are worth changes. And Paul was able to see that following Jesus was worth it. He goes on in verse 10 to say, my goal, now he's, got, he's expressing his goal now. This is, his, is this your goal? My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship or um, partnership of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Uh, that last verse, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead, um, I don't know if when you read that, it, uh, it sounded as if Paul was being uncertain about his future. He was not uncertain about his future. In Philippians 1.21, we've seen it a couple of weeks ago, He said, for me, living is Christ and dying is... If it's gain, that doesn't sound like he was uncertain, does it? He's saying that for the rest of his life, he's going to be making choices that confirm and show that Jesus is the one that helps him develop an idea of what the good news is and not other things. If you are considering Jesus... It is worth following Jesus when you add up what he offers, which includes himself. I thought it was great that uh, you guys, you know, on the weekend, you were challenged to just not think about how what he gives, you're looking out there, but himself. That is beautiful. To meet Jesus and know him, there's no greater treasure than Jesus himself. It's worth it. When you add it all up and you subtract, like Paul did, everything else that was competing. If you are a Christian who is in the middle of suffering for Jesus in some way, hang on. It's worth it. 